Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. My name's uh, Charlie Leadbeater, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you to this very special event, the inaugural Future of Work Awards. A colleague of mine, Jenny Winhall, and I were thinking about doing some work around the future of work, some kind of design and research work, and we thought it would be a good idea to go and find out what people are doing where are interesting ideas coming from. So then we thought, well, actually, if we're going to do that, it'd be a good idea, rather than keeping it to ourselves, we could share it. Perhaps we could turn it into an award scheme. At the time, we were in Vancouver, um, and someone said, oh, you should go and talk to this guy, John Shell. So luckily, John Shell was in Vancouver at the same time, and he took me to lunch in a Lebanese restaurant in a basement. And I had one of those strange conversations where everything I said, he said, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. And at the end of it, he shook my hand, and he seemed to have agreed to become a founding partner in the process, subsequently not only giving us a lot of his research, but also a researcher to boot for a few months to help us with it. So then I came back to London. I thought, how am I going to get the money to make this work? I'll call Steve Roberts at Barclays, who I'd sort of done various things with. Usually, when you send that email, it takes like a month to get a reply and then a month to have a meeting and then a month for them to say no eventually. So you've wasted three months just to get to no. Instead of which, Steve said, oh, come over and talk to me. And I sat down with him and Kirsty. And he said, that sounds like a great idea. Yeah, we can back that. That's fantastic. So the next port of call was Matthew um, at uh, the RSA. And so I said, I'm trying to create this thing, the Future of Work Awards, and I've got some sponsorship from Barclays, and I've got some support from social capital partners. Do you think it would be an idea the RSA would be interested in? And normally what happens at that point is the organisation you're talking to says, yeah, of course we'd be interested, but we would need to brand it as our project and take control over it and probably put someone in to run it And actually, Matthew, to his credit, said none of those things. He just said, yeah, that's a great idea. So there we are. After a few weeks, we had this entire project. We had an incredible idea, and we had a brilliant idea of A and Z, but absolutely no idea how to get to B, C, D, and E, which is the kind of crucial thing. So the thing that I've learned from other projects is that you have to find someone who's really, really good to do it. So lurking in a cupboard somewhere underneath the stairs in the RSA, we found Fabian Wallace-Stevens <laughs> in this sort of dark, sort of contained space, um, a bit like Harry Potter, you know, living with his muggle parents or whatever. And so we took Fabian out of that darkened space into the light and said, it is now your job, Fabian, with Rich, his uh, associate, to research the Future Work Awards off you go and do it. And to remarkably, that is exactly what he then did. He just went off and did it. And occasionally, we would sort of call in. You know, it's like communicating with a stricken submarine on the floor of the ocean. (laughs) Are you still there? Are you still alive? Has the oxygen run out? No. And Fabian and Rich and Elvis would sort of just get on. Anyway, over the months that it then took, they managed to uncover 400 different innovations from around the world Uh, all organised around the future of work. And what we're going to do tonight is announce our very first cohort of winners. We're going to hear from some of those in person uh, who are trying to create um, better solutions for work. 
which work with flexibility to provide greater security and cohesion. Um, and we expect the awards bit of the presentation after a panel discussion to be uh, finished by 7.15. So, um, and there'll be drinks afterwards. Please come and join us for drinks where you'll be able to meet more of the award winners. So we've got a packed session. And to kick us off, Matthew Taylor, the Chief Executive of the RSA. It's such a big night tonight, we've run out of microphones, so I've got to, we had to find this. In the same cupboard we found uh, fabs. Um, uh, I, I'm, I'm really, really upset that I can't stay with you for the whole evening. I've got to go and do a programme called Moral Maze. And, um, and this isn't for tweeting, but I'd really much rather be here than uh, doing that. But don't tell the BBC. I need the work. Um, I just want to give you kind of three uh, or four key messages um, before I hand back to Charlie. The first is, um, yeah, the first message is uh, don't be miserable. Now, I know that's hard right now. Um, but what this process has taught us is that, yes, the world of work is changing, and it's almost impossible to open a newspaper without reading about how gig platforms are atomizing labor markets, technologies are automating jobs, the robots, your next boss will be an AI. Um, and people fear that those trends inexorably lead to greater economic insecurity. But what the Future Work Awards show, what the winners show, is that we can actually work with the grain of these trends and we can harness the benefits of flexibility and technological disruption. And we can do that without foregoing social inclusion and security. So the first message is we don't need to be miserable. The second message is, and this is really easy one for everybody, I think, don't just rely on the government. Um, uh, I did a piece of work for the Prime Minister a couple of years ago about the future of work, and I'm very proud that the government is implementing 51 of the 53 recommendations that I had in that report, and I think that will make a real difference to the framework of rights that exist uh, in this country, and there's probably more scope for further government action, but the government is not the only avenue for making um, a difference. What the Future Work Awards reveal is that there are amazing solutions emerging from civil society groups, from the trade union movement, from within large corporates, um, and from profit-making startups, and actually just from everyday employers who say, no, actually, this doesn't work anymore, and we need to do things differently. The third message is, is don't be modest. So I think when you hear, uh, I've judged lots of kind of awards around these kinds of ideas, new initiatives and startups and social enterprises. And as Charlie will confirm, because we're both kind of long in the two, one of the depressing things about this process is often when you go back and look at these things, they burn brightly in the sky for a while and then they disappeared. What's really exciting about some of the things that we're talking about um, tonight is that they may have started as grassroots initiatives, um, crazy innovations, uh, the inspiration of a particular person, but actually, far from disappearing without a trace or struggling along without achieving any significance, the Future Work Awards show that, that actually these ideas can grow to scale and they can grow quickly. Portify are growing their client base by 10% a month. Burtzorg now have 10,000 plus care workers on their books. The digital credential platform Credly uses a digital badge every second of every business day. So there's real scope for these kinds of initiatives to change people's lives at scale. 
And finally, my final message is this, although uh, this is an award ceremony, often that can feel like it's the end of a process, it's absolutely not the end uh, of the process. We uh, have put these awards together uh, with Charlie's support, with uh, Barclay's support. Um, yes, to give award winners legitimacy and recognition uh, for their efforts, but also what we're exploring is connecting award winners to clients and to new sources of finance and using their examples to encourage others to start their own good work initiatives. It would be entirely inappropriate of me to use this platform to look at our supporters from Barclays and say, I'm looking forward to next year's Good Work Awards, because that would be bouncing them into supporting uh, our initiative. But nevertheless, I am looking forward to next year's Future of Work um, Awards. Uh, so, um, uh, I, as I say, I can't stay. Fortunately, I do know what you're going to hear, because I was involved in the judging process, and you're going to hear some really inspirational stuff over the next hour or so. So, thank you. Uh, so, as, as Matthew said, um, the event tonight is part of the RSA's Future of Work Centre, which is supported by Taylor Wessing, Friends Provident Foundation, Google.org, and the RSA Fellowship. So now, we're just going to have a panel discussion with four people who are involved in central ways in organisations which have won uh, awards. So I'm going to invite to the stage Sarah de Hoosh-Ribessin from SMART, from Brussels, um, Jonathan Finkelstein from Credly, which is the digital uh, credentials organization. Uh, Joanna Bouffoy from Bob Employ from France. And Nat Wally from Organize. So, Sarah, starting with you, just tell us a bit about SMART and where it started and what it's become. So SMART started in 1998, so about 20 years ago, more than 20 years ago now. And it started to support freelance artists. Um, basically, uh, SMART means Société Mutuelle pour Artistes, so Mutual Society for Artists. And it started as a small non-profit organization that was dealing with uh, artists that had three main characteristics, I would say. They were freelancers, they had different contractors, uh, they had different jobs to make a living, and they were also dealing with changing teams. And today, SMART is a cooperative uh, that is active in nine European countries, and we count over 100,000 people who've used our services, and last year they invoiced for over 200 million euros. So you can see that small entities can really... So that's interesting, because I assumed that SMART was some reference to IT or something like that. It's actually completely different. Yes. How, uh, what's the offer that you make to people to become members of the cooperative? So basically, there, there's two aspects. We help them develop their activity with online tools. Um, they can uh, deal with administrative complexities that in continental Europe can be <laughs> very burdensome. Um, and our software really simplifies all the legal aspects. And we also are a shared enterprise, which allows them to really use SMART as if it was their en uh, enterprise. And they use it as they need it, with the teams that they need that are changing all the time, basically. And along with this, we also provide them with the most protective legal status, which is the one of employees, salaried worker. So they're freelance, but because they're a member 
of your organisation, they have the protections of being an employee, even though they work freelance. They work freelance, and the time of their contract, we are their employer. So it gives them that flexibility as well. At the time well. of the contract, but yeah. not... So it just come, kicks in when the contract starts? So we have started uh, last year uh, an experiment, which was uh, providing those who can and who want, because we have very different profiles, um, they can have open-ended contracts with us. So if they have enough right. volume of activity, we can, right. we can hire them. Uh, and then after. what practical kind of offers do you make to people that make it such a... Because a lot of people might say, oh, that sounds very nice, but you know, kind of freelancers and self-employed people are famously very kind of stingy and careful with their money. Why would they work with something like you? Well, above the fact that they're opening rights to social security, they, are also, uh, they also have access to the mutualized services that we provide them. So it's an extra solidarity. Along the years, because we have so many members, we were, and that we're a nonprofit, we re-inject all the benefits in the development of new services. So along the years, we were able to provide them with a guarantee fund, so we pay them within seven working days in Belgium. Uh, we have a debt collection uh, also, of course. Uh, we have adapted insurances uh, for accidents at work that, extend, that is extended to private life. And we have training, uh, Personal advice as well. We have, like in Belgium alone, we have 11 offices that are open because it's very wow. important to be able to advise For them. people coming in, asking questions yes. about tax, security, exactly. so on and so forth. And who, uh, you've got 23,000 members, I think, is active it? In Belgium, active yes. in Belgium. How many of them are now artists? And So we've opened up to freelancers about three years ago, I would say. And I would say now that the creatives are half our, uh, our members. All the others are in what some would call um, new generation of freelancers. So they'll be coaches, they do training, IT consultants or consultants broadly, um, researchers, uh, graphic designers, but those are in creative sector. Um, so a very wide profile. And we also had, for a moment, we supported uh, the writers of Deliveroo and Take It Easy, which was an experiment that only lasted two years, but it was quite interesting. It didn't work. <laughs> It did, until the legislation changed, and it was no longer interesting for the platform delivery to work with us. Right, I see. <laughs> and so, and you're growing at sort of 10% a year, or something like that. Two, two, two digits. Two yeah. digits, yeah. Um, so more than that. Mm -hmm. um, wh where do you see yourself headed? Well, it's always about um, supporting our members and their needs, and we've developed services that are really for freelancers, and now we want to help support those who are in a more mature uh, state of their, of their business uh, to, to help them. And also small businesses, because we see it's a real ecosystem of freelancers and right. small businesses that we want to support. And we are already supporting, actually, but we'll do it because more Because most of the freelancers are working for small businesses yes. in some shape or form, and the employers need support as well as the freelancers. Exactly. Yeah, great. Thank you. Jonathan. <laughs> A, what, what was that? A digital badge, a second or something. Um, tell, what, what does Credly do? So um, if, if you think about all the things that you know and that you can do and that people uh, rely on every day to put you to work and to uh, open opportunities to you, um, think about how many of those things that you know and you can do are actually recorded in some kind of verified way um, versus you self-reporting it or hoping somebody uh, gives you the chance to tell your story. Most of us have a CV or a, an online profile or a resume, um, but very, very, um, uh, virtually none of it is, is verified. Uh, and what Credly does 
is we essentially help every member of the workforce develop a verified CV or profile, and we do that by actually getting organizations who see you in action and see uh, your skills, um, who observe the learning and your performance uh, and your certifications, uh, we get those organizations to issue a digital version of your skill or your certification, which then becomes portable and discoverable, and it belongs to you as an individual as you navigate promotions, new jobs, uh, new learning opportunities. So if I was, so kind of recommendations people give you on LinkedIn that you're good at X or good at Y, would it be a more formal version of that? Or even more, the training you might get if you're, I mean, I think I went on one training course when I was employed by the FT. Um, and it would be, what, to spell that out, what you actually learned and what you can do. I, I would say it's um, a lot more like uh, organizations minting currency that turn your, your human capital into something you can actually spend. So in other words, it's an entire organization usually that's standing behind the skill that's being verified, much like someone handing you a, a, a note or, or, or a, a piece of paper currency that's backed by the full faith and credit of an organization that, that both defined the skills that mattered and that they valued, saw you and observed you or verified that you have them, and then provided it to you in a way that's not just visible within the organization, whether it's an association or a large company uh, or a small company or an educational institution, uh, but is visible and understood by everyone around the world because it's in a, a common open language. What about the importance of these sort of soft skills which are quite uh, tacit, difficult to define, collaboration, empathy, so on and so forth, grit, um, can you, is there a way with Incredibly of recognizing those kinds of things? There is, and it's, it is one of the uh, trending types of skills, largely because often people have a hard time thinking about how do you describe those skills? Um, how do you do them in a way where they have just as much value as the industry certification that might be well known uh, across your, your company or your organization? How do you create uh, the equivalents for those kinds of so-called soft skills? I think of them as human skills. They're the actual skills that uh, determine whether you'll, you'll actually succeed at, at, at your job. Um, but the, what, we, what we help organizations do is, is break down whatever the skill or outcome or achievement or metric uh, that you're rewarding or acknowledging is, we help you structure it. So every skill, no matter what it is, has the same common set of information. Uh, what, where was it observed? Who observed it? What kind of assessment was involved? What period of time did it take for that, for that skill uh, to be developed? Does it expire or is it evergreen? Um, is it uh, issued directly by an organization or an organization that was authorized to issue it from another one? Um, and so no matter what skill, we're providing context and depth and rigor so you can start to look across a whole range of, of outcomes that we all possess in this room and start to realize that perhaps the person in the marketing department actually knows some tech skills and maybe the person in the tech department actually knows some marketing skills and maybe we can start to get people to work not just based on arbitrary job titles or degrees or pedigree, but by, by what they can actually do. So it builds up a much richer... Uh, more detailed account of what people can do, where they've learned that, how they've shown it, which isn't just captured by a piece of paper or kind of some sort of CV resume type thing. That's right. And, it, and, and, and doing all of that in a way that the earner, the individual, controls and owns. So uh, the employer that's issuing a credential to their employee who learned some data analytics skills or customer service by being on the front line at the, uh, the local 
convenience store or gas station, um, they both, uh, each of those individuals uh, is now, can, can choose how and where they want to use that, not just for potentially a promotion within their company, but to look laterally or beyond to see how their skills, because they've been spelled out, might actually connect to needs in, in, in related careers or pathways. That's one of the surprising things about all of this is when you start to put a common set of, of language around skills, people start to see pathways and opportunities that they may never have considered. And how many people now using your platform or using this so um, uh, Credly has uh, tens of millions of credentials uh, under, uh, uh, under our umbrella. Uh, our network has thousands of organizations. Um, and it's becoming increasingly common for an individual to have earned a credential or a badge from three, four, seven, ten, forty different organizations, depending on what fields they're in. Um, so for some people, that vision of a completely verified story that they can use to be empowered uh, is, is starting to be more fully realized. Great. So Joanna, you're, you're dealing with individuals looking for work um, with also a kind of tech-enabled solution. At Bob, I should say at this point that Joanna has just become a naturalized French citizen. Is that right? Yes, last week. Last week. So a month before Brexit. She's <laughs> just kind of, in time. What I a, applied the day of the vote. You applied the day of the vote yeah. and you've just become French. Congratulations. When can we... <laughs> when can we... Uh, where, and you live in Paris? Yes. Do you have a spare room in yeah. your... You do? Yeah, okay. So we'll come and... Come and, and you work for Bob or Bob employee? Yeah, so um, Base Impact is the NGO. Uh, it's, a non, it's a non-profit tech, tech. So we know we will talk about tech companies. This is a tech non-profit um, with the idea of using all, all the techniques and methodologies we use, uh, big tech companies use, but for, for common good. So that's the goal. Um, and so uh, we uh, use, we want to empower individuals um, to manage their career and their job choices um, using information. So the idea is that with artificial intelligence, everybody can become their own job coach. So um, job coaching, uh, in individualized, uh, personalized job coaching is the most effective way for people to get a job or to improve their, their career, but it's very expensive. So it's, it's costly and it's hard to scale. Um, and so with using AI, we can provide a, um, a much cheaper So I'm, I'm looking for a job and I might, if I was unemployed, go to a job centre plus or a coach. Instead, I could go to Bob Employ and what would I do when I got to Bob Employ? Well, ideally as well you would, so... Um, as well as, it would be your, yeah. it's a sort of augmented thing where you do the human thing and the tech thing. Yeah, so the thing about having the free, the free platform, which is very user-friendly, um, it's, it's, it's very easy to, it's much, more e it's much more easy to start using Bob than, than to go through the traditional process. So you can immediately find out what your, chance, what your employability, so we try and give an employability score. How likely are you to find the job that you're looking for? Um, based on uh, where you are, what the job is, um, and your search me methods. So we're using uh, data from using data from lots of sources, from from the government, from the OECD, um, in order to um, to combine. It's a bit like a recipe. You combine somebody's personal information with um, with large scale. So here, it's national French data, in order to to, to help them understand where they are. The and system. then give them recommendations about what they might do to improve their chances. Exactly, yeah. So, so far we've helped nearly 200,000 people 
um, and we're uh, eight people in between Paris and Lyon. So, um, so eight people have helped 200,000 people search for a years. job in two years on a free platform. Yes. Without state support. Um, with state, so state help with the data. So right. Um, so the data has come from the public, but you're, yeah. it's, you're not being paid for by a public service. No. No. But it's philanthropically also, funded. Exactly that, because you know that's the beginning. Um, yeah. That's where we are now. But we would really love to be. Um, you know, we think of ourselves as a public service, and we so would you're really a like sort to of, be part public of public service, service in the process of growing and becoming because actually the public service hasn't done what you have done. It could have done what you've done, but it hasn't. Yeah, it could have done, and, and we, but we, we, we definitely see Bob as a partner of, yeah. uh, of Pôle Emploi, which is the French uh, National Employment Agency. Um, and, uh, and the idea is that, you know, before, going, before meeting a counsellor, if the counsellor, uh, if, the, if the careers advisor has the information um, that Bob can provide it, it speeds up the process right. and it also allows the person to enter the, the search much more quickly. And so some people might think, and I have thought this myself about these sorts of things, oh, that sounds kind of easy to do, but how effective is it really to do that kind of search? Can it really make a difference? Yeah. Um, so 90% um, of people who use Bob um, say that it's as or more personalised than an um, in-person human-to-human uh, -human interaction, which is a bit surprising uh, but also gives Depends a lot which of job centre you go to, I suppose. <laughs> I mean, the public sector is not, not always known for the deep personality of its services, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and um, so 45% of the, these people who have found a job whilst using Bob said that Bob contributed to their, them finding a job. Yeah. So we're, we're really happy with the success in France, um, but we need, you asked at the beginning, what, what do you need? Uh, we, really, we would really need um, the infrastructure of the... Of, uh, of the job centre or the like, national infrastructure um, in order to, to scale Bob to, to the Right, the so you need to connect with the public sector yeah. in some kind of way. And just finally, I noticed that you talk about Bob in quite personal terms. Does Bob actually, does Bob exist? I mean, <laughs> is Bob a kind of person? Well, <clears throat> uh, does it have Bob, a personality? Bob, we, we call it Bob has a soul. A soul? Um, so, um, How French. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> does Bob smoke jeton? Does Bob what? Smoke jeton. Bob, no. Bob is a non-smoker. Oh, right. Um, but uh, Bob, is, Bob is your, is your, your friend, the, the, the person you know in your, in your social circle. Right. Who you feel like has got all of the smart tips and you don't know how, how he or she got right, them. Right, right. Um, but uh, they're the person who really knows the, the craft of life. Oh. And, um, and so the idea is that Bob has principles of care, for example. Um, Bob won't tell you to move to another town before he's um, offered you a different kind of job or suggested that you, look, that you try and use your skills to get a different kind of job where you live. So he tries to avoid disruption, personal disruption, family disruption, right. um, and he prioritises your needs as a So as it's a human. kind of caring AI then, in a way. Very caring. Yeah. It's kind of care written into an AI, yeah, and that's really which turns out to be more personalised than a person. Well, it depends on the person, but, yeah. but, but some of the messages that we get from people who use Bob are, that, you know, they say, um, um, I've never been listened to so closely before. 
Wow. Um, or they say, um, you know, um, I've, been at, I've been at the job center for two years and this is the first time I've realized what my situation is. Or, or they say, thank you so much, um, Monsieur Bob. You know, they, <laughs> yeah, and, and, yeah. It's, and it's, it's, in a way it's, um, you know, I don't come from a tech background and, uh, and I think that's really useful in doing the job that I do because in a way it's, it's surprising and it's, 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 it's humbling. It's a bit scary to see how people can get so close to this AI, yeah. Um, but it also shows um, it also shows um, the potential of, of adding these principles yeah. and and philosophy into yeah. into the designing the, the experience, yeah, yeah, yeah. designing the care into the into the algorithm. Yeah. So I'm I'm going to move on. Thank you for that. I'm going to move on to Nat at the end. Nat Wally from Organize. So loosely speaking your job is to sort of throw monkey wrenches into organisations, is that right? Absolutely, and I love it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, Organise, our mission is to give everybody the tools, the network, and the confidence to make change happen in their workplace. And I think kind of the easiest way to describe it is probably just to talk you through a campaign that we've got running this week. Um, so, the tools we offer, at the moment we offer sort of petitions and surveys, so anyone can go onto our platform and start running a survey. So, we've got a woman called Karen this week, she works at Boots, she's worked at Boots for like 10 years. She's running a survey to find out if other people have the same problem that she has. So Karen's a mum, and she can't take off her holidays when her kids are off school. And part of the problem is that Boots, for some reason, you have to book your holidays a year in advance, and you have to book all of them a year in advance, so you don't have any flexibility within that. And she was like, maybe it's just her store. So she works in Chumpsford, maybe it's just the Chumpsford store. Um, so she started running a survey to figure out, hang on, is this just me or is it everyone across the country at Boots? And within a week, she got 200 Boots workers to respond, so then she's got a data set that she can use. And I think this plays on something you just said, Joanne, um, like they feel like Bob's listening to them. People haven't been asked what it's like at their work for so long. Like in a lot of white collar jobs, you get asked it quite often, but in blue collar jobs, often you don't get asked at all. So people are really eager to fill out these surveys and share their experience, because sometimes the first time they've had an opportunity to do that. Um, so already Karen's then got 200 people on this survey, and the beauty of our tools is anyone who takes part in like a survey or a petition. So Karen sorry. can create the survey. So Karen. So Karen doesn't have to ask you whether you could create the no, survey. So Karen she can create the survey. Yeah. How does she find the other Boots people? So it's a combination. There's either people who already exist in our community. So our community is now 50,000 strong, and that comes from national petitions. So anyone who signs a petition puts in their workplace. So they're joining that network. That network's always growing. And the other thing is there are already loads of networks that exist within workplaces in WhatsApp groups. So if you're trying to swap a shift with someone, you're probably in a WhatsApp group of 30 of your colleagues. So if you drop a survey in there, you're going to pull a load of those in, and then you've got them within your network of organized members that you can talk to directly. And that's where the power starts to come in, because the and network builds confidence. And is it your sense that social media tools like WhatsApp and others are being used extensively by workers to communicate with one another, yeah. Like, totally. Okay. So take, we've right. got a lot of Amazon warehouse workers who use our platform. Um, and they work, the warehouses are in, like, these remote places. There's no bus services. So the only way to get to work is to sh uh, car share. So there are these huge networks of Amazon workers who are sharing lifts to and from work. So it's a network that exists for kind of, like, an informal, non-sort of collective action reason, but can then be utilised to kind of take kind right. of, like, exciting political action. So your most... <laughs> recent most famous campaign was about Ted Baker, yes. who hugged people a lot, yes. and the founder hugged, that's a sort of euphemism, I think, also may have worn his underpants in the office, outside his trousers, or whatever. But um, that works, those campaigns with big high-profile companies. Yeah. 
I suppose the question is, so you run a campaign, what then? How do you kind of turn that into real change that really helps people? So I think Ted Baker is a great example, right? So it's a well-known brand, and all of a sudden you had sort of 300 of their staff taking action, and that made headline news like around the world, easy to win change in that space. What we saw off the back of that was loads of people coming to our platform and being like, I work for a company of 50 people. I can't run a petition because they'll know it's me. Um, and, you know, I'm going to lose my job. So what, what can you offer me there? Like, our mission as a company is to give people the tools. So we've actually launched an app today, conveniently. Um, it's an app that our members have designed. Uh, so 400 of them fed into what this should look like. It's an app to help you basically collect evidence of what's happening to you at work. So you've got a bank of evidence if you need it, whether you're being harassed or bullied or discriminated against. And basically, it packages it up into a case file that you can just give to a lawyer or your union rep or your HR boss. But they've kind of packaged up and done that legwork for you. And that's as a response of basically, like, sometimes collective action isn't the way to fix it. If, it, if you're being bullied, it's very difficult to go in and collect a survey of other people trying to find out if they've been bullied too. But making sure people have the right tools to make change happen in their work is kind of what organisers aim to do. Two final questions for you then. Have you had any interaction with trade unions in this process? Do they see you as helpful to them or a competitor to them? I think it's, it depends on the union. So some of right. them see us definitely as a bit of a threat. But I'd like to see everyone, our tools are free to use at the moment, to pick up and use them to build networks of people who could be members of unions. I think that would be an exciting way for it to go. Yeah. Some unions really embrace it. So the IWGB, who are another award winner, I don't know if anyone's here tonight, um, a lot of their riders, they have a lot of delivery riders in their couriers branch, and they use our tools to basically campaign for changes within delivery. So they've got a campaign running at the moment to be able to see the second location you're cycling to, because basically you have to accept it, and it's a gamble. It could be five miles, could be one mile, and you're getting paid the same for that job. So they're campaigning to change that through our platform, and that's right. the kind of collaboration I think could be really powerful. Um, where do you think you're headed? What's your ambition? for organ Organisers just under two years old. Yeah. How many people... 50,000. 50,000 members, and yeah. how many people in the organisation? Uh, four of us. Four. Yeah. So that's quite an impressive leverage. So where do you think you could be headed? Where would you like to be? So I think the most thing I'm most excited about is the power of the data. So at the moment, you know, people are aggregating data across workplaces, but when you start to anonymise that data and aggregate it nationally, which we can do from our app, but also from the platform that we have, you could do some really exciting things like giving people proactive access to a lawyer, maybe before they know they need one, where you've seen these patterns of behaviour happening in workplaces. Um, and I think there's a lot of power in that kind of like using technology for good right. um, and giving people more access and like proactive yeah. access to those rights. And that's what yeah. I'm most excited about. So there are, I, I don't know, Sarah, what you do, do you have a big thing with data and members of SMART? Are they more prepared to share data with you? Because all three of these are very data rich, I suppose. They all depend on rich data to offer well, better solutions. Well, we, we use the data to understand more the reality of our, of our members. Um, the thing is, they are not binded to us, so we only see what right. they do with us. We don't know necessarily if they have another job somewhere else, a steady job, full-time, part-time, uh, if they have unemployment benefits, or if they're having other right. freelancing on their own. We don't, right. we don't know that. Because you're very free and easy for yes. people to come and go. and. That's part of the growth that you've had with all these people in kind of slash jobs and part-time contracts. And I mean, basically, you were created by artists, but then the whole of the labour market has kind of moved in your direction, I suppose. Yes. Or, yeah. What do you think is the biggest thing uh, that would allow your growth? Because in ways, you could be quite culturally specific that 
smart solution. Do you think it is or do you think it could grow? Well, we are in, active in nine European countries, so Europe, compared to the rest of the world, has a very specific uh, frame of social protection and labor law and so on. Uh, we are starting now in Montreal, and we are also with other organizations supporting some, some co-ops of freelancers in some northern African countries. So here we're discovering other realities. Um, so there is, of course, the legal aspects, but for us, I think freelancing, it's not, I think we see all the data that shows that freelancing is booming everywhere. And there is this kind of reborn of need to, for mutual support. And this is what we're providing. And that we've seen today also other examples of mutualization, yeah. which are very interesting. So I think this is really very interesting. So, but we also think that if there's more social protection that is state provided, it's also more interesting for the members. Right. And um, we provide salaried status because it's the most protective but we are more inclined in having a more universal approach of social protection. If you work and if you have to work to make a living, you need to have access to the same things, yeah. Yeah. the same rights, regardless yeah. of we, how you're working yeah. And, yeah. and on under what legal yeah. status. So yeah. I think that, that could help a lot. Yeah. Um, Jonathan, what's the, what's the biggest thing that would help you grow, do you think? Or is it just demand that's driving your growth from within companies and from people who want to show what skills that they've got. I would say when, when we started uh, Credly a little over six years ago, the, one of the more common questions I heard in the first part of our journey was coming from universities and colleges and training providers who said, if we issue a, a certification, a credential, a better signal for, for what we observe in, in, among our learners, will employers actually care about it? Um, and in that time, uh, employers have actually become the largest issuers of credentials for skills because after all, over the course of your life, you'll probably spend 99% of it in the world of work where you'll be demonstrating skills. Um, there is a role for university. It's, it's a lifelong role, but there's a role for employers to, to, um, to, to play a role in, in verifying your skills. We have more employers issuing credentials now than there are degrees being issued by universities every year. Um, so now the question becomes, if an employer issues a credential, what will the rest of the community do? What will other employers do? What will universities do? Will they accept it for credit? Will they shorten the path towards a degree or a certification? Will another employer accept that credential? And I think the thing that's, that's changing that supply and demand to when you put it under one roof and an employer becomes right. an issuer of credentials, um, and the reason they do, by the way, is because uh, it it helps project that you're a great place to work, that you recognize yeah. your employees. It shows that you'll be a lifelong learner. Um, they'll see seven times the number of people completing their training programs when they have a yeah. credential versus when they don't. They'll see an impact on their bottom line. Most companies that introduce a recognition technology like, like what we do will see uh, tremendous growth in revenue because they have uh, happier employees, more productive employees, and they're putting the right skilled people on the job. So for us, I think, continuing to get employers to take what can sometimes see counter, as a counterintuitive step, which is set free the skills of your workers so that they can be empowered to tell their story and recognize that they will more likely stay uh, because you've done that uh, than, than leave. And so there's a, 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 a momentum building around employers saying that portable skills are a benefit and they should be, they should be offered to every employee. Yeah. So I'm going to, if there are any questions or comments um, from anyone in the audience for our panel, then please do 
Um, put your hand up. There's a, a lady there. Is there anyone else on anyone else in the room? And there's a, there's someone here. Just just quickly tell us who you are. My question is um, mostly for organized, but for all of you in terms of data protection laws. Um, the fact that you have information about various individuals, whatever, what's to stop an employer coming to you and saying, we'd like to know what information you have on our organization? You've mentioned that the findings of sorts are anonymous, but for all of you, how do you handle data protection issues when it just seems so convoluted? Um, even as an individual, to, to get your own information or get your own point across. And then a lady here. Is it on? Um, Christina Langhein, a long-time fellow, um, self-employed branding consultant. Um, by the way, I love the name Bob. It's what I gave my son. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, My question is to um, Jonathan is um, in terms of employees, what's the mix between men and women? Um, from my experience, and I'm not gonna name names, but men are very good at inflating their CVs compared to women. Um, I'm just gonna put it out there. Um, and you know that could detract them from wanting to actually even be part of your process. It could deter... To, uh, employees from, yeah. You know. Because it creates a currency when actually you're kind They're of working on a different currency that... Yeah. yeah. No, you're Sorry. speaking to someone who... My only qualification is PPE from Oxford, which is just kind of like bullshit, really. Um, uh, so, yeah, Jonathan, how do you prevent inflation? And then perhaps Nat and others, what do you do about data? When you've got all this data coming through, how do you protect people? Um. And for the record, I like the name Bob, Bob too. Bob was my dad's name. And, <laughs> and I think I'd like to think that he's the soul of, of Bob employee. Because uh, it'd be easy if we were just all called Bob. Exactly, exactly. Um, a nasty Bob. Everybody knows a Bob. Bob. So, um, <laughs> so I, I think uh, your question is a, a terrific one, and it's something that everyone on our team thinks about every day, which is, first of all, how do we make sure that in creating better signal, signals for skills, we're not creating more obstacles when we're intending to actually uh, break down barriers for people. Um, I, would, I remember back in 2011 or 12, as we were getting ready to start the company, I went to visit a museum in New York. Uh, it was the Museum of Modern Art, where I was meeting with a group of educators, one of whom was uh, involved in the juvenile justice programs they offered to help previously incarcerated youth um, find pathways towards careers. And everyone was a fan of what we were talking about doing with portable credentials, but this one individual was very skeptical and said, what I don't want to see is us create, uh, you know, people come to my programs because I don't have grades and I don't have certifications. This is a, a safe place for them to discover who they are and what they know. And uh, I wouldn't want to create another barrier where they think they, they have to be this tall to ride this ride. And that's uh, stayed with, with me um, as we've been developing Credly to make sure that um, what we're, what we're trying to do is bring transparency to the labor market. Um, our focus is, is not just is not helping the people with fancy degrees like, like Charlie's that will, that will navigate the, the labor market and whose pedigree will, will be a good um, uh, helper in that, in that regard, um, but to actually surface uh, people based on 
on, on, on the merits. Uh, and so a lot of the partners and the customers that we work with are ones who are going deeper than the, the, than the high-level proxies we use. To your question about gender, we're seeing uh, 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 parity uh, uh, on that front. And also, surprisingly, the, the age range of, of people served is, is fairly uh, wide. It turns out that people that are uh, uh, traditionally near, uh, nearing retirement still care about learning new skills. In fact, they're thinking about how they're going to stay active and mentally engaged and, and contribute uh, even later in their life and picking up new skills and having a way to show that despite how they might, be lo how they might look or be perceived, they actually have something uh, to offer, in a, in a, in including the recency of their skills. Great. Um, so, Nat, what do you do about data? And, and, and also, Joanna, you're obviously gathering all sorts of data about your people using your platform. So it's a really important question. Um, it's a really important question, thank you. Um, I think there's kind of there's two answers from the organized side. So the key thing is the data that's being collected is driven by the members. So they're generally collecting stuff that they would be comfortable sharing, and I think that's quite an important thing to remember. The two sides of it are, one, there are companies out there who are collecting so much data. So Amazon, for example, have a pattern on a wristband that you wear, and it tracks like where you're moving your hand on your shift. So they're collecting that kind of data. What Amazon workers have been collecting data on on our side is actually how often they're able to go to the toilet. Really simple thing, but the fact that actually if they go to the toilet on their shifts, the toilets are so far away that they end up getting a, like a warning, and you get three warnings and you get fired. Um, because basically, if you go to the loo, you're away from shift too long, you can't hit your targets. And so they use that and aggregated that data to show to Amazon, actually, this isn't fair, and it triggered nationwide inspections. So I think that's one side of where date companies have loads of data, uh, and they're collecting data kind of to challenge what the companies know. And the other side of it, we have um, a load of co-op workers. So there's about 5,000 co-op workers who, um, they're experiencing a lot of armed robberies at the moment on the co-op because they change the way they do their shifts. And the co-op head office had no idea about this because you're not paid to fill out the incident report. And it happens so frequently, they've given up calling the police. So co-op head office had no idea at the volume of armed robberies that were happening in their stores because they didn't have the right mechanisms to collect that data. So data, I think, is becoming an interesting tool in terms of advocacy to kind of leverage that. Um, but yeah. And that's the two and Joanna, what, what do you, so you've got 200,000 people who've used your platform, so yeah. you must know a lot about who's looking for jobs, where they're looking, what jobs are coming up in, in real time. So we, we, we did uh, know about all of those people, but because of the uh, GDPR GDP. regulation, we have forgotten about lots of them, and that's the real key to that, um, and that's what's so liberating about being a non-profit, and with the model that we have is that we, like, uh, the, the agreement with the user is that when we will never ever use their data, we'll never sell their data to anything right. else. And I can't uh, remember ex actually what the GDPR t cutoff date is, but we delete. We, so we register the fact that we have this person, that we, the number, but we delete their email and their name and everything after a certain amount of time. And um, and the idea of Bob is that you, you know, you go on and you get your diagnostic diagnostic of your job of your employability and you can you can save that as a PDF, you can print it out and you can sign up to coaching emails if you want that help you, you know how to improve your body language in an interview or how to contact your network. Um, but you don't have to, you can also say I don't want any emails and then that can be the end of the whole thing. And so it's really it's a really different experience from uh, social networks or 
The and problem with scaling Bob is that you would have to do it with a sort of French English, wouldn't you? You couldn't just do Bob. Could you do Bob in English? Or yeah, you, I've translated you, it already into English. Could it, uh, after this, if any of us wanted to go and visit Bob, could we go and visit him? Yeah, yes, um, actually, could. if, if yeah. anyone wants to try out uh, a, a dummy version of Bob in English, then just come and ask me and I'll send you the link to the, 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 mo the mock-up in English. Right. And if anyone wants to try out their French, it's designed so that it has it's a very easy French. Right. So I think uh, <laughs> so many of you would be able to are, give it a go. There are a number of um, common themes here which go through the whole awards, which um, these, these four, uh, to some extent, exemplify. Uh, one is the importance of new forms of sharing collective action, collective belonging and work and sharing risk and, and people searching for sort of forms of organisation and status which is sort of somewhere between employed and, and self-employed in some sense. A second is this connection between data and voice, that how do you get the data to be able to have the voice to, to be able to influence it. And the other is um, this thing about making talent transparent. There are a number of the award winners, which are basically about say, correcting biases, I suppose, that the labour market is full of biases, human biases, about who's talented, where they come from, what you're looking for. And actually, technology can be used in all sorts of interesting ways to, to open that up. And there are, amongst the winners, all sorts of fantastic uh, organisations. Um, both Nat and Sarah mentioned, I think, work. well, you mentioned working with Uber, and you mentioned working with Deliveroo. Deliveroo. So one of the reasons that, that I got involved in this is that um, my nephew, who got A's in every subject he did at school and then went to university and got a very good degree in English literature and then came out, became a Deliveroo driver, a uh, cyclist. And his patch was in our bit where we live and he would come and hide with us in his house at the end of his three-hour shift. And one three-hour shift he came and said, um, you know, he's right at the end, he'd been working really hard, he's going home. I said, what are you going to do then? He said, well, I'm going to have lunch. I said, what, what are you going to do for lunch? He said, well, problem is I've been cycling for three hours, so I'm really hungry, but I haven't managed to buy any food. So what are you going to do? He said, well, I'll get a delivery. <laughs> um, and there's just this sort of nightmare <laughs> vision of the entire... You, young population just subsisting by delivering takeaway food to one another uh, that persuaded me that we needed some sort of better uh, future of work. And that's what these awards are about. It's about exactly what we've seen here, which is about we can make a difference. Uh, it doesn't need to be ominous and foreboding. You can shape the future of work. Phoebe, you've got one last question. Here, quickly. Yeah. Phoebe from Inspiral. Um, I had a quick question for Jonathan. Um, as you were talking about Credly, I think it's really exciting, but I couldn't help thinking about the Chinese social credit system sort of thing as a potential negative future of letting, you know, employees kind of rate, employers rate their employees, or, you know, when you compare that to the university system when you, where you have, you know, examinations and they remove the name from the examination, how can you stop... Um, yeah, like it kind of connects with Nat, what Nat's doing with like bullying or, yeah, like coercion in the workplace. How do you separate that out from 
giving people... Coercive credentialing. Yeah, or like you yeah. have a bully boss and they don't recognise your skills. Like it could be nightmarish. Just wondering what you've, yeah, what you've thought about that. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's an important question. I think uh, a couple of things. First of all, we, uh, we, um, uh, every individual earns a credential, uh, decides who and when and how and whether they want to share it or own it or, or never uh, uh, connect to it in any way. Um, so um, hopefully it's additive and you're telling the story that you want to share and you're curating your own story. This is not a record that gets written in public. It's, it's first written for you and you choose what to do with it. Secondly, I, there is a lot of um, uh, natural incentives for uh, employers and organizations, whether they're nonprofits or for-profits, to recognize that when they mint a currency, they, what they are recognizing says as much about them as an organization as it does about the individual they're recognizing. And um, most organizations are taking very seriously what level of rigor, if I'm going to stand behind this and say this person can do this or has learned this, um, what uh, I, I want to be respected among my peers, my customers, uh, the world at large. And so they spend uh, a fair amount of time uh, trying to uh, say as much as they can in as helpful a way as they can that still reflects on both parties really well. Um, but at the end of the day, it's up to the individual to accept it and, and, and to take it forward. So, without further ado, please join me in thanking Nat Wally, Joanna Bufoy, Sarah de Hirsch-Ribassin, and Jonathan Finkelstein. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, and so, now we're... Uh, we're going to move on to the sort of main event, the um, handing out of the awards uh, to the award winners. As I mentioned earlier, the Future Work Awards have been made possible with the support of Barclays Life Skills Programme. Um, and so we're delighted to be joined by Kirsty Mackey and Stephen Roberts from Barclays, who are going to... Steve's just going to say a few words, and uh, Kirsty's going to hand out the awards. Stephen, yes, go ahead. Thank you. Um, the, the, there were three things. If yeah, I go can on. Say that. Um, the first one, I like Bob too. <laughs> and I used to work with someone called Bob, but no kids. <laughs> yes. And um, uh, the second one was to say a huge thank you to uh, Charlie, first of all, and the RSA and Capital Partners for um, letting us be part of this incredible thing. It, it's a huge privilege and it's been huge fun. Uh, and the third thing, I just wanted to clarify that we're not an easy touch, as the way Charlie described it was a year ago, and he just popped over and said, can we have a load of money to do this stuff that I'm doing? It doesn't work like that. And I wanted to explain <laughs> what, what, why we worked hard to find the, the money to do this. And um, what we've been doing, uh, what Kirsty's been leading over the last six years... Yeah, it, it is life skills, which is giving young people those skills that go beyond what's taught in school to help them move forward uh, in life into whatever they decide to do in world life. Uh, at the same time, we've been trying through uh, digital eagles and more latterly through uh, with Eagle Labs um, to transform what we do in our physical environment, which used to be branches, into making those useful places for the community. A bit like that. Okay, I'm sorry. Uh, I hope you, uh, the, the last stuff was okay, but it was... Anyway, so... Um, 
what, what we've been doing with the branches is turning them into incubation centers for high growth companies as well as places where we can teach children to code and give access to people to advanced manufacturing techniques. We, we've opened now the 22nd Eagle Lab around the UK. We now run the largest uh, high-growth business incubator network in the UK in terms of number of sites in our buildings uh, and trying to make ourselves useful. We'll have another five of them uh, before uh, the middle of the year. So please come and have a look what they look like. We're trying to help as far as we possibly can to be useful in a working environment that's changing. Uh, and, sorry, a personal reflection. Listening to the award winners downstairs, what a beautiful group of companies. Absolutely incredible. And my God, the four that were up here. So we are going to try and connect with all of those. Absolutely incredible. And I was thinking, oh my God, I'm so old. My, I've got four sons that are 19 to 27. Two of them have already done three times more jobs with companies than I've done in the 29 years I've worked at Bartley's. And it was only listening to this. I'm the last of this generation that is going to be employed for that length of time with one company. It's absolutely Staggering. incredible how just my children showing how this whole world of work has changed. This work is so, so important, and what you're doing is so, so wonderful and beautiful. Um, it's a huge thank you, and, and a huge thank you, Charlie. No, thank you. Thank you. Oh. Okay, take it, take it with you. Uh, Stephen, that's very uh, heartfelt. So actually, another theme is that a lot of the people who use these kinds of services want flexible forms of work, but they want flexible forms of work which are secure rather than insecure. So they don't necessarily want a nine-to-five job, but they want a security that goes with flexibility. So without further ado, I'm going to ask Kirsty if you're uh, ready. Now just to um, welcome to the stage in no particular order... Uh, Ind Eldrissi from WeMind. WeMind is a collective of 20,000 freelancers in France that provides access to a range of insurance products, including, remarkably, a rent guarantee so that if you're a freelancer, you get a guarantee of your rent so you can actually rent a flat. Sho Sugihara is from Portify, a fintech group uh, which uses alternative credit scoring to provide better priced loans and credits to gig workers in the UK so that they're not disadvantaged in the financial services market. Thank you, Sho. If you get a chance, do speak to Matteo Serra later from all the way from Colombia, uh, from Bogota, uh, from Hogaru, which is a gig platform for cleaners that directly employs more than 700 cleaners, turns them into employees in five cities in Colombia, and gives them full access to full employment benefits and other services such as microloans.
Zofia Stachowska is from Link, uh, which is a remarkable gig economy platform in Kenya, which employs Kenyan artisans. And Link uh, provides them with training, loans, and other support. Phoebe Tickell is from Inspiral, which is a remarkable collaborative organization based originally in New Zealand of mission-driven freelancers who come together to work collaboratively. Uh, so have we got anyone from IWGB? No, so IWGB are an award winner, but they're, they're not here. So next up is Mark Hooper from IndieCube, um, which is a remarkable uh, kind of shared workspace and platform for freelancers and independent workers based in South Wales. Uh, Dan Schladerman from Workit is not popular with Walmart or Amazon um, it, because Workit's a digital platform that uses AI to help people get their rights at work from trusted advisors and others. Uh, Noella Moshi has joined us today from Nigeria. Uh, and WAVE, a training program that's empowered young people in West Africa with skills to become self-employed and uh, to take up employment opportunities. <laughs> Jessica Ball is from a great program from New York City called Pursuit, which is creating pathways for people doing blue-collar jobs to get jobs in the high-tech sector. All the way from Delhi is Suvanka Mishra from Bloom, which is a digital platform for smallholder farmers, providing access to information, finance, and markets, working in emerging economies around the world. And then please welcome back on stage Jonathan Finkelstein from Credly, who you've already met. Sarah de Hirsch Ribassan from Smart. <laughs> Joanna from Bob. <laughs> and Nat Wally from Organize. Thank you, Kirsty. And there are a series of other winners that you can look at and see on our site, and we'll be doing more about them and with them. And they are Catalyte, LRNG, Educa, and Laboratorio in the skills and training category. Some great projects in diversity and inclusion, include me and Ultra, in improving management and HR systems within companies, NAC and Giraffe. And then a series of organizations which we've given awards to, 
because they're very early stages. Contrados, which is a really remarkable organization working with Mexican migrant workers in the US. Apli, which is a fairer gig economy platform. Comunidad for Uno. Birdsog, the very well-known collective and cooperative uh, care approach to care. And Ecutia, which is a kind of tech for good um, uh, venture. So those, that is just a first cut. That was our first year from a standing start. And so what we want to do is to build this and develop it, not just as a set of awards, uh, but as a community of innovators who are devising new and better ways for people to work. And we want to attract to that community investors uh, who can back these organizations, ways of developing them through accelerators and other programs, and so that we develop a field of innovations around work to give people a sense that work is there for them to shape, have a voice in, and to make their own. So thank you very much for coming. The hashtag is Future Work Awards. Please do join us downstairs for a glass of wine, and hopefully we'll see you next year. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews, and animations.